First episode recorded under the new studio setup. It has to be this one. <laughs> God. Hope you like the new setup. Hopefully it'll also help reduce headaches. That's part of the idea. But as you can see, we technically have more light in here. It's just a little more diffused. So, woo! Also, we're trying to re-implement the green screen for the chair. We'll see if that works or not. You'll probably see some green artifacts on the chair because there's only so much I can do, right? <clears throat> Anyways. <sighs> this freaking episode. Okay, so... I, it has been impressed upon me several times, actually, that I shouldn't assume everyone has seen all the works I've put out. Now, I admit I kind of have that mentality because I tend to remember most of the stuff I talk about. Most, not all. Every now and again, someone will say something in the comment section, and I'm like, I don't remember saying that. What the heck are they referencing? But for the most part, I remember most of the stuff I've already covered, including what I'm about to tell you. However, the off chance you haven't watched all my other Star Trek stuff... Uh, let me tell you about this thing called Lamentations. Uh, this is a concept I came up with for Threshold because the idea was the worst, what I considered the worst episode of an entire work, was something I found lamentable worthy. And I wanted to do something special for Threshold. So I did. Much, 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 much later, uh, when I was going through the TNG stuff, uh, by that point in time, I'd undergone a lot of different changes in how I do the show, gotten a lot of different feedback from you guys, and, of course, I'd started working on the Babylon 5 stuff. And so, when I got to TNG and DS9, the overall mentality had changed. At first, I wasn't 100% sure how to implement that mentality. And there's probably, I'd say, two episodes that should have been Lamentations in Season 1 of DS, or, excuse me, TNG that weren't. You can have fun guessing which ones they are if you'd care to. But either way, uh, at the time, I was trying to be more strict about how I used it, similar to how I did. You know, again, previously it was the bottom, the very bottom one episode. Then it was, well, okay, let's be more restrictive about that. But I started thinking about it. And I started being like, you know what, that's stupid. <laughs> if there's an episode that is just face-palmingly bad, that happens to have one good scene... That doesn't really redeem the episode, now does it? If it's an episode that has a lot of ups and downs, that can redeem it. If it's an episode that has a good half and a bad half, that can redeem it. But one or two scenes does not redeem an entire episode. So we kind of restructured it a bit to how Lamentations would be considered going forwards. Funnily enough, there would then be uh, two Lamentations that TNG would get that I was not expecting to give in the process of going through TNG. But that's kind of the general format of where we're at now. Basically, a Lamentation is a really bad episode. And it is something special. I don't give it to just episodes that are face-palming or ridiculous or nonsense. The episode has to really bother me and be actively a net negative for me to be at the point of being like, okay. So this, I don't, it, the point is, a Lamentation is not a bad episode. To, to, to summarize the last several minutes. A Lamentation is a really bad episode. But also, a Lamentation has to do something above and beyond to really give it that status. It either has to piss me off, or has to be actively frustrating or aggravating, or maybe it's offensive in some way, or maybe it's just absolutely stupid to a point where I can't even begin to enjoy it, or something, right? It has to go an extra step, or two, or three. Now, I'm already over here on the left, and there's already the candle over there, so you already know my thoughts on this episode. Funnily enough, this would qualify for a lamentation, even for the slightly relaxed rules we were using that got justice a pass, because there is nothing redeeming about this episode for me. Not a damn thing. So, <clears throat> where do I begin? This is a script by Berman and Braga, and it shows. Um, there's also a bit where Braga himself said, and I can see a lot of the story ideas coming from Braga here. Braga himself mentioned that you know, this is the kind of story. Yeah, this is the only kind of this is the kind of story idea you can only really do with someone who is less seasoned, like Tucker, someone who isn't experienced at being in space and interacting with alien life. Um. I don't think he realizes, but that kind of makes it worse, even though I do see his point. But I'll, I'll explain why I think that's nonsense in just a minute. 
<clears throat> so, you remember what I talked about with the suspension of disbelief? The better the episode, the more willing I am to bend. Well, that goes the other way. The less good the episode is, the less I'm willing to bend at all. So, let's talk about the cold open and why it's crap. The cold open is a chance to try and show off some visual effects shots and have Archer kind of be pulled up into the air while he's in the middle of a shower because the gravity goes down, the artificial gravity goes down. I'm not going to point out all the other reasons why what happened probably isn't what should happen. In fairness, I'm not exactly an expert in gravity either, but um, I'm pretty sure it's not just he immediately starts floating into the air, especially not the water, which is also being pressure shot down to the ground. I could be wrong about that. That's entirely possible. Who knows? Maybe the gravity actually got reversed rather than just straight up down and also simultaneously lowered substantially at the same time. Here's the reason I'm bringing this up. The point of the cold open is dumb physical comedy. Now, I want to clarify that for a second. When I say dumb physical comedy, I don't actually mean that as an insult, as strange as that may sound. Dumb physical comedy is Three Stooges, right? Now, you're probably thinking, well, Three Stooges is very it's smart. Three Stooges is very well done and can be funny, but that is dumb physical comedy, which is basically the point of... Um, it's a, it's a specific slice of slapstick, to put it simply. You're going for a specific slice of plonk, and that's the overall approach you're going for. And there is definitely an art to slapstick, as the aforementioned Three Stooges could tell you about. So, okay, I'm not automatically against this idea, and I'm not, you know, looking at this like, okay, whatever. But the problem is, that's all it is. It's just a quick slapstick gag. <laughs> Plonk! <laughs> he fell on his ass. And that is not so funny. Oh, yes, what not? The problem is, most of this episode is that kind of not really funny funny. Now, I do have to mention that when there's something that's a comedy that you don't find funny, it's worse because you don't think it's funny. So it's kind of grating or boring, right? I mean, that's just how that is. There are certain things that... Humor is a widely diverse topic, and some things just don't appeal to some people the same way other things do. So that's fine. But my point is, this is not funny to me. And then also I feel it's a mistake. Because all it accomplishes is a quick gag. When they could have done something a little bit more interesting. Remember, this is the cold open. And the cold open is supposed to do one of two things. Either to give you an insight into the type of episode you're going to be watching, or to try and give you an insight into the type of show you're watching. As I've talked about many, many times, again, trying not to repeat myself too much, but I am trying to repeat myself because people keep telling me I need to repeat myself more. When you're watching a cold open, it probably helps that I do these in chunks. So I remember what I talked about, like, yesterday, but for you it's like two months ago. So, anyways... Uh, cold opens are for people who have never watched the show before and are getting interested in it, or for people who have watched the show and to keep them interested in this specific episode, right? So, plonk, you could see why that would only appeal to a specific subset of people in both categories. And, uh, well, this is a good time to mention something. This is the episode Mom and I left this show on. I told you I'd be keeping an eye out for it. And I remembered, as soon as I saw the cold open, I was like, oh, God, yep, that's exactly what happened. And I even texted Mom to verify, and she had vague memories of it, but also verified that she remembered this episode. When I mentioned the basic plot outline, she did recall it. We watched that cold open and said, oh, wow, this is really stupid. And then we watched the episode to conclusion. And then I didn't watch Enterprise for several years. So this is it. This is as far as we made it back when this show was live. Wow. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So I, I, what would I do better, right? Come on, Lord, do better, because you're worthless and terrible. Well, I am worthless and I am terrible, but I do have a better idea, and that is have Archer be fine. One of the things that I like that the show has done periodically in the early episodes is show how, just kind of a mundane, everyday look at space travel, but not from a Trekkian perspective, but closer to something more modern day. And that's something I have liked in quite a few episodes. 
So the idea of, for example, the gravity going on, Archer just kind of keeps brushing as he goes up, grabs a bit of the water and splashes it on here, get a little bit here, screws up, and he's just, he's utterly un, unfazed by it. After a few seconds, he reaches out. We still have an issues with the gravity emitters, indicating that this is an ongoing problem. Yep, nope, we're still having this problem. Okay, yep, nope, that makes sense. Okay. Short shuts it back off. Gravity comes back on. He fumbles a bit as he comes back down, lands smoothly, and just goes right back to showering. Now you're probably thinking, what's the point of that? Threefold. Number one. It shows that this is kind of how life is on a starship when we don't have the tech level of modern Trek. Point two, it shows that they've been having periodic issues immediately getting across the idea that later scenes will also do, that the ship is having malfunctions, which is also part of the, well, could be a part of the recurring subplot of the whole, you know, ship isn't quite ready to be out in space thing. It is not, but it could be. And the third point, Archer is a seasoned space vet. He either has practice for this or actually has experience with this, so he just kind of rolls at the punches smoothly. Having said all that, I almost think it would have actually been better if it was Mayweather instead of Archer to get across the same general point. But, whatever. In fact, now that I'm saying that, I think I like that idea better. Put Make it Mayweather instead. I think that would have worked better. <sighs> so then T'Pol hates human food, because Berman and Braga are writing this episode, and she hates the smell of them. You know... Maybe you should learn to be a bit more diplomatic when it comes to dealing with their food to Paul. <sighs> I'm sorry. This this episode is just dragging me down. I'm also in a bit of pain right now, but that's neither there nor there. It's in the episodes all over the place. Um, the, the, everything's broken across the whole ship. Everything's broken because the plasma exhaust is being warped in a specific way that it shouldn't be which is then causing all of the issues on the ship, including the f the water producer, to malfunction, along with the temperature control things, and I think there's like two or three other things. Obviously, gravity plating. So, um... Why? Oh, I know. I know what you're thinking. Lore, you're demanding too much science from your science fiction. That's your opinion. You know, that's totally valid. It is possible that I am being too nitpicky. But as I described earlier, what is required for me to be less nitpicky is more good. And in the absence of good, all I am left with is bad and questioning why it's bad. Which leads me to this problem. These people just kind of hanging in the, the warp field, piggybacking off of another ship's warp field, which I'll get to that in a second, apparently is causing ship malfunctions across the entire ship, which is portrayed as a light, kind of harmless thing. I can't be the only one who thinks of that as actually a legitimately terrifying thing, especially since it's affecting the entire ship. Oh, yeah, another thing it's affecting is they can't send visual communications. So the entire ship is having random malfunctions. You know, I feel like I've heard that before in Star Trek, and usually when it is, it's said along the lines of, if we don't get this fixed, we may be dead within the hour, because just about anything that breaks on a spaceship in just the wrong way could be catastrophically bad. But no, it, it's okay. It's it's just a joke. It's just it's a joke, guys. It's okay. It's super highlight. Oh my god. So then they three times in this episode they polarize or oh shoot, I don't remember how they say it. Uh, they do something with the hull plating. You know, activate hull plating. They, that's not what they say. They say like polarize it or something like that. Oh, I don't remember how they say it. But it, either way, the way they say it. And the way it is presented, e each time they do it is raise shields. And I'm just making the point once again that the whole polarizing the hull plating thing is once again just a copy-paste replacement for raising the shields. Which, as I think I've already established, irritates the crap out of me. The fact that they do it three times in one episode just kind of adds fuel to the fire of why this episode sucks. Then we find out that a ship is cloaked in their field. I'm going to pause a moment to talk about that. One of the things that Star Trek has passively portrayed throughout the course of its existence is the idea that cloaking technology is a bit of a cold war. Uh, that's not a great... You know, it, it's an arms race. It's an arms race, specifically. Because 
the cloaking tech starts off really bad, all the way back in Balance of Terror, which I believe is the first time we see cloaking tech in Star Trek. It might There might be an early one, and I haven't covered TOS yet, so I'm not sure, but I know for certainty they brought in the cloak in Balance of Terror. It was actually really easy to bypass that cloak as long as they knew the ship was there, and therefore knew to be looking for it. They had no problem following the ship up until they lost it, which was the big catch. So, you know, the whole submarine episode. I love Balance of Terror, by the way. At least by memory. Again, haven't gone back through that yet. So, okay, cloaks are pretty easy to bypass a few dozen years from now. Sure. But if you go a little bit past that, you notice that the cloaks get better and better and better. Even through TNG and DS9, cloaking technology slowly improves over the course of those shows. What's funny is, of course, the technology to detect those cloaks also improves, and they actually use specific techniques in early TNG, and later in TNG reference those techniques as no longer being valid, so they have to come up with new techniques. Now, all of this makes perfect sense. You know, again, arms race. I'm with it. What's important is this ship here has a reasonably advanced cloak that the only way they are able to detect it is because they already know exactly what to look for, and otherwise they would have never noticed it. In fact, if they had never, if they never realized that their plasma foe was being screwed with, they never would have found them. Now you could argue that's a matter of their scanners being crap, and that's a valid answer. I just wanted to talk about the cloaking thing because, honestly, I wanted something to talk about in this episode. So they, they're piggybacking on the warp field. Uh, I feel like I've already said this with regards to Berman and Braga's writing, but they have this tendency to skip ahead to the good part and completely bypass any logic or reason on how they get to that part. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the reality of being a ship that is not capable of going faster than light, then finding another ship that is, and being able to piggyback on their work bubble. Okay, Actually picture what would be involved in making that happen and the ridiculous odds of finding a ship at all in range of your not-faster-than-light drive while you are trying to inch your way to them and their faster-than-light drive. Also, I hate to skip ahead, but as we find out at the end of the episode, they are about a month away from their home at full impulse. Now, if you don't understand why that's significant, that means they're basically right next door. A month at impulse, a month at sublight drive, is really, really close in, in interstellar terms. This is probably, I mean, honestly, they could probably have gotten there at warp in, I don't, I don't feel like doing the math, and I didn't in my notes, very quickly, even with the much slower warp drive, even going the speed of light is going to substantially lower that trip, right? And and again, this is something that will actually come up in a future episode of Enterprise Season 1, so it's not like I'm just talking out completely out of my arse here. So this makes no sense. Let me just let me just skip ahead. This makes no sense. And again, I'm not willing to give them flack on this, or slack. I keep doing that. I'm not willing to give them slack on this because the episode hasn't earned it in any way. So then they go over to this tiny ship. Now you're probably thinking, all right, Lord, now what's your problem? Well, the ship is really small. Now, what is one of the more universal standards of technology? Improving technology in many ways doesn't just mean making it more efficient or making it be able to do better things. It means making it smaller. This thing right here, for those of you listening to the MP3, I'm holding my phone. This thing right here literally has greater processing power than the first computer I ever owned, which is an old 4633. And um, that is in many ways due to, obviously, technology advancing, but micro... Uh, Oh, shoot, I can't, actually can't think of what it's called. Micronization or whatever. When, when parts are made smaller and more efficient so they can do more with less, right? Hell, I'm pretty sure the battery in that thing is better than the batteries in just about anything from the era I just referenced that I had access to. Certainly had better than my Game Boy did that I didn't own because I never owned a Game Boy, but what, you get the idea. God, it's, this episode is destroying my brain. I apologize. I'm trying really hard to get these points across because this is just so irritating at every level, and it didn't have to be. All of these niggles I'm pointing out would be really easy to smooth over in the script, but instead it's just, eh, go with it. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm willing to go with it if you're going somewhere interesting. We haven't even gotten to the main plot of the episode yet, which I'm going to rip that one a new one when we get there. 
So they have this tiny, tiny ship, which is apparently super advanced. They have the ability to have a freaking holodeck, talk on that in a second, and a cloaking drive thing. Field? I don't know. They have a cloak. They have a freaking cloak. So that means super advanced, right? That makes sense. That would explain why they don't have anyone on their own ship who knows how to repair it properly. It also explains how it takes them three hours in order to be, go through a decompression chamber in order to make people capable of existing in the environment of their ship. I'm actually willing to give the decon thing a thing. In fact, that's kind of a cool idea and would be replaced um, in another episode. But no, no. Instead, they're just sure. By the way, I do want to give special praise, uh, such as it is, to Randy uh, Oglesby. Oglesby? Oglesby? I actually don't know if that's a G or a D. I can't read my own handwriting. It's okay. I've got the episode up over here. I'll just look really quick. That is Ogle. It is a G. Oglesby. Uh, you might be thinking, who's that? Well, obviously, you probably know him as the guy who plays Degra, but he's actually been in Star Trek several times up till now. He plays Trenarl, uh, the captain of the en enemy alien ship, and also he played Solaran Prin, probably the most memorable role of his up till now, which was um, the Cardassian who was basically a mass murderer and a psychopath back in uh, DS9. But anywho, I know that narrows it down a lot, right? So Tucker's all wonky, and what happens is several minutes of wasting my time. And I know, you could level the same argument at me, I'm just wasting your time, and I do apologize for that. But he, what happens is nothing. Nothing of interest, nothing engaging, it's just Tucker's all wonky. So they're like, you should go do this to fix your wonky. And he's like, no, I just want to get to work. Okay, wonky, 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 I can't do this, Captain, I'm too wonky. Okay, well, maybe you have to do this, because, you know, you're wonky. Hang on, let me talk to the enemy captain. It's okay. Now, this is actually important. It's okay. Um, we have, uh, we do this a lot with other species. We have a lot of experience with alien species. That's important. Remember that for later, okay? So these people have plenty of experience with other aliens and know what they're doing, and so they're like, here, go lay down, and he's finally like, okay. And the only reason near as I can tell that this whole scene exists is so that Janeway can give a note, that's an order, which he does. And then once he gives the, that's an order, Tucker goes off and lays down, and there we are. This then leads to a weird pseudo-sex scene. I shouldn't call it a sex scene. The The scenes between Tucker and the woman who played the Talaxian back in Voyager are clearly in terms of the tight camera angles and the ang and the angles they use on those tight cameras and the music choice they do and the way they talk. It's des it's designed to be that pseudo-fake-faux-romantic thing. Oh, they're falling for each other, that kind of a thing, right? Sure, sure. Now, this is... You'd think I would complain about this, but actually, as absolutely weird as this sounds, the idea of two people just having an attraction to each other and admitting it and then just kind of moving on, kind of, I'm fine with that. But I do want you to remember that, that they don't... <clears throat> that he doesn't do anything about it. He clearly is attracted to her. He finds out she's attracted to him. But he is, in his own words, a complete gentleman. And he is. So I'm kind of with that, actually. It's one of the few parts of the episode that doesn't piss me off. So he goes and fix it, because naturally these super advanced aliens have no one on board who can fix their thing, but a guy who's never even encountered their species before can fix their engines no problem. You know, I'm okay with Tucker being brilliant with, with engineering. I really am. All, all the Star Trek engineers are always super brilliant. Sure, okay, fine. What irritates me more is that they have no one who can even come close to his capability of repairing their ship. <sighs> okay, so this then leads to 18 minutes. We're 18 minutes into this 40-minute episode. 18 minutes, oh my god, 18 minutes into episode 4 of a brand new show which has consistently tried to portray itself as tonally lower tech 
introduces a freaking holodeck and they just they just couldn't resist could they they had to have a freaking holodeck do note by the way that the holodeck adds nothing to the story whatsoever nothing from both a construction perspective the cloak could replace it easily we'll talk about that later and from a narrative perspective he, she could have just taken him to her quarters Maybe showed off her visual presentation thing, or maybe she has, like, I don't know, uh, pictures of home, or maybe the walls move to present pictures, so, like, she's got screens on the wall, something, right? All of these scenes could have been completely ejected from the narrative entirely, and nothing would be lost other than, wow, holodecks in Enterprise! Believe it or not, this is actually more of a sticking point for my mother than myself because she was like, it's, I, I distinctly recall this. I don't remember her word choice, but it was something along the lines of, how the, in, cuss, 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 do they have Colodex a hundred years before Enterprise? And I'm just like, I don't know, Mom. I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask these questions. Uh, and we just made fun of the episode for a bit. Do note, by the way, the episode established several times that this is a full-tilt holodeck. I remind you that even the holodecks on the beginning of Enterprise D, that is to say in TNG, are not as advanced as this holodeck. There are clear demonstrable limitations of early TNG holodecks that they then improve, uh, once during 1100101, and then it just kind of gets better over time as holodeck technology improves. And, of course, that goes forward into both DS9 and Voyager. That makes sense. But these holodecks are basically at just, like, mid-TNG level, with the exception of the fact that they can't generate people. That's actually something they call out specifically. Although, that is a presumption on Tucker's part, so we don't actually know if they can. But they bother to show that they can interact with the sand, that they can smell, that the boat moves, and that they can walk. All of the features of a modern holodeck. Now, I point that out, because if this was a, a more traditional hologram, where basically you're stuck in one place, but you can change the scenery around you, you know, kind of like those, the, I don't even remember what they're called, there, there's like this full screen camera thing, where like, you have uh, monitors all around you, and they're curved monitors, so what you basically have is one circular monitor, and you can look in all directions, and it's got one of those omnidirectional cameras going, so you can see everything, that kind of a thing, right? So, that would have been at least a little bit more understandable. Still doesn't actually have any purpose in this narrative, but, you know, it would have at least been something. But no, no. The real reason this is, is it has to lead to the scene that actually pisses me off. Younger me was a lot more pissed off at the holodecks and the cloak and the Klingons than older me, who was pissed off at the fact that Tucker was effectively raped. The fact that he's a guy does not make this any better. This is effectively the child all over again. And I was not particularly fond of the child either. But at least in the child we had a couple good presentations. And Marina Sirtis actually tried, bless her, to act in that episode. But here what we have is, oh, this is a game we play. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because that's going to come up later twice, okay? This is a game we play. By the way, yeah, we play we play that game too, although um, we usually have a little less clothing when we're playing that game as humans, but I digress. I, I get it, alien, you know, it makes sense. So, they, so the next scene, which is I think like two or three days later, it's not long. It is not a long time after. Uh, he's already demonstrating physiological changes because, as we know, thanks to Berman and Braga, we are Pokemon and can evolve and mutate at will in order to adjust to stimuli. All you have to do is do a little tinkering and shazam! There's an extra nipple or two on your wrist. Sure. That makes tons of sense. So we've got the the physical and emotional violation we've got the people can be rearranged and like we're freaking legos then to really continue pissing me off what happens next is it's a joke you may remember way back at the beginning when i started off this rant and when i was more tired than angry now i'm angry but 
I made this comment that one of the points of a cold open is to kind of give you an idea of what kind of episode you're in for for returning viewers. The cold open of Archer, ha ha ha, he fell on his ass, isn't that funny, absolutely demonstrates the level of humor and overall tone of this episode perfectly. So I suppose it did do its job in that particular manner because that's exactly the level and type of humor that is utilized throughout the course of the rest of the episode. Ha ha, he's prego. Isn't that funny? To Paul, can't stop snarking at him. The whole medbay scene. Archer, several times, is like, trip. Now, what's interesting about this is Trenier plays Tucker straight, whereas Bakula and Blaylock are playing, you know, more like, <laughs> yeah, sure, if you know what I mean, and just ribbing him the whole time. But Trenier plays it straight. He actually gets upset at the idea, do you think I would jeopardize my career over three days on an alien vessel? Now, that actually stuck with me. This is the one bit that, under the old system, might have salvaged this episode. Might, maybe. Because it's still not the full scene. The scene still pisses me off. But at least Trenier is trying, as Tucker, to portray this as legitimately as he can. To go back to something that happened with Harry back over in Voyager, Tr Tucker cares about his job, his position, his career, and most importantly of all, being out here and doing this enough that he would never endanger that just for a quick romp. And he makes that clear, not in a joking way, but in a serious way, as if he was actually on an actual TV show that was supposed to have actual quality to it. I, I can forgive him for misunderstanding the circumstances. And that kind of stuck with me. It also stuck with me because it really helps to hammer in one of two facts, and I'll let you decide which. Either Tucker is monumentally stupid, or he was violated. Take your pick. I suppose it could be both. But my point is, when they interrogate him, because that's what it is, about the entire situation, he repeatedly and consistently insists that he did nothing wrong. After extensive discussion, he finally considers the rock thing. That's true, I did put my hands in the rocks for a few minutes. But that's it. That's all that happened. Now that's important. Because that means to him it was something so amazingly innocent and unnoteworthy that at no point did it occur to him that it might be related to the fact that he is now pregnant. Now, again, this could entirely just be bad writing, and that would just make him very stupid. But if we were to play this straight, which the episode is certainly half trying to do, what that means is he was coerced into doing something that he presumed automatically was very innocent because he would never jeopardize his career under these circumstances to do a quick dalliance, even with someone he found attractive. That's more the, the thing that he would entertain in thoughts. But he would never actually do anything he felt too much. Never kissed her. Never even held hands with her. Just noped right out of that. As, to be honest, he probably should do. And under those circumstances, he was coerced and manipulated into doing something that was actually, in fact, incredibly intimate. He just didn't know it. And when I phrase it that way, you probably understand why this pisses me off so much. So, this then leads to another stupid scene where we find out there's this bit where he's going up and down a lift and he complains about how it doesn't work for a child. Ha ha, he's thinking about the safety of kids now. Isn't that funny? It is portrayed as a joke. And by a joke, I mean Neelix is bad at cooking. And no, I'm not going to explain that one. You're going to have to actually get that one for me to... Yeah. <clears throat> but it is done in the exact same style. <laughs> He's bad at gargoyles. The... Then, then, he talks to uh, Dillard, I think is the crewman, and he says, look at this handrail. Put your hand on the handrail, you go up, it'll take your fingers right off. Dillard's response is, why would you ever lay your hand on that? I want to stress that a period of less than six seconds has passed between him calling it a handrail, oh, and by the way, it's used as a handrail in the very scene, and the guy asking, why would you ever put your hand on a handrail? What? 
Now, what's funny is what Tucker is talking about is actually a legitimate safety violation. We here in real life have rules that we have developed over the last about a century or so that would say that's not cool, because it isn't. Tucker is absolutely right. That is amazingly unsafe. <laughs> you know, OSHA, hello? Then we go to a half-dinner scene where he's freaking out because everyone's like, ha, 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 he's so funny. Archer can barely contain his laughter, and at several scenes, Bakula is either directed to or of his own volition decides to put like a half laugh as he's trying to portray this seriously. But it's just so funny that his best friend has been physically violated. I want you to imagine just for a moment the child. I know, bad episode. You don't want to think about it, but bear with me, okay? Season 2, TNG, The Child. I want you to imagine for a moment that instead of it being played as a drama, which it was, it was being portrayed as a comedy, which this is. Now... How would that make that episode in terms of quality, in terms of how you feel? How, how would that change that? If Riker was just like, <laughs> sorry, I just, Troy's pregnant. <laughs> and everyone's just kind of like, kind of making fun and snarking. Think about it. <sighs> then... Uh, we find out that he's going to give birth in a uh, little less than three months. I don't even know what to talk about that. Again, I, I just, I ha this is when I have in my notes that we are not Pokemon. <sighs> so they finally find the ship. Uh, turns out it's trailing a Klingon battlecruiser. Okay, so, um, so the trick that they, they did where they somehow, despite having a ship that couldn't go faster than light, and somehow getting in spinning range of another ship, which can use warp, warp speed, and then being able to piggyback them. They just repeat that trick. So all the complaints I had earlier are now repeated, especially now it's a Klingon vessel. But I suppose we can excuse the Klingons for being very stupid, especially at this era. But we'll actually talk more about the Klingons in the episode Judgment, which I believe is season two. But fu funny thing, funny thing, that's a Katinga. Now, I know what you're thinking, Laura, you're an idiot. No, that is a Katinga. That is actually a copy-paste of the exact same digital model they used from Deep Space Nine, which is why it looks kind of weird on the Blu-ray, because it's a, it's a DVD-quality thing that was being done for a lower-resolution show that was copy-pasted into this one at the last minute. Now, I hate to bash this point on, but that really stuck with me, so I decided to look it up. Turns out, this is actually interesting, I've got the whole article over here, and I, I honestly recommend uh, you look up the D4 class concept. There's actually a, a surprisingly large amount of information about this. Uh, I first actually became aware of it thanks to Star Trek Online, the Koratinga class, which is actually a ship you can get in STO, and I actually flew around in one for a bit, because I think Katingas are kind of cool looking. <clears throat> so, you know, sure, why not? But anyways, so... I looked this up, and I found out some interesting stuff here. Turns out, they actually put together a model for the D4 class. Now, if you don't understand the significance, the Katinga is basically the D7. That's what we see in TOS era. So, D4, D7, logic. Cool. Um, they produced a ship, and the producers said no, so they copy-pasted the DS9 ship. For the longest time, that was the extent of my understanding here. While I was watching the rest of the episode, I noticed there was a link to a forum thread, which I pulled up, and I followed... I basically followed the trail down of information. I got a lot of more information on this, which I have written up over here on my second monitor. Uh, turns out, this was actually done by a gentleman named Koji Kuramura. And he basically put together the D4, which you can see models of online, and judge it for yourself, in his spare time, basically for fun... And for free. just He just put that together. Uh, apparently it took about 36 hours to do. And he produced it and blah, blah, blah. Now what, what happened years after this incident. So what apparently happened is at the time he was it, they were interviewed about it in Star Trek the Magazine Volume 3 episode. Issue, excuse me. Volume 3, Issue 9, page 46. I got all my notes here. And apparently it was just whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, they... They wanted more windows. They wanted to have windows on the model, so that was their reason for saying no. And that's fine. I mean, it's understandable. And 
what happened was they basically towed the party line by completely agreeing with the producers. Then, several years later, when the show was no longer live and office politics were no longer a thing, he said something else entirely, which I copy-pasted here word for word. Please forgive me. It's from the forum post from, uh, what's this, from Hobby Talk. The only other design, uh, excuse me, the only other original design that was also chopped, I remember now, was the John Eves Klingon D6 or D5. I included in my calendar for 206. It was originally done for free for Star Trek Enterprise by Koji Kuramura, who stayed up 36 hours to do it for the show. It looked great, and I do agree, it's pretty cool looking. But the producers said, put more windows on it. And we said, no. You have to understand that we did so much extra that at that point it was the straw that broke the camel's back and they were being mindlessly trivially unappreciative. So in their infinite wisdom, they choose to use a low-resolution Katinga model from a timeline over 100 years later we had lying around because that was much more logical than a ship that needed 10 more windows that no one would ever notice. <laughs> There's actually, like I said, I'm not going to go over this whole list and I, I, I have like three or four tabs open too. Uh, on, on actually on this monitor hidden behind the the black screen I use to hide the glare. Um, pro tip: I actually have my my screens are blacked out for when I record these because if I don't, what you'll see is something closer to this. You see how the, the glare increases; you can see reflections and all that. Anywho, it's a little behind the scenes of my own. So, having looked into this, I'm like, what the crap is with this stupid ship? This is gonna be. This is gonna come up later. By the way, just just keep this in mind for later because this is gonna come up. But this is okay. I mean, they've already got a holodeck and they've already got a cloaking ship, so you might as well have a Katinga D seven, which wouldn't enter service until about a century later. And the model is specifically from a show that's closer to two hundred and fifty, I think, years later. I don't know. It's quite a ways from Enterprise to DS nine. That's all I'm saying. Because Windows? Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something that's going to be very shocking to you. I don't think the Windows had anything to do with anything. I think they just didn't want to accept the model. What I don't know is why. Did they think they'd have to pay for the model that was already done from the studio that was already working with them full-time under contract to do you know, animation and renders for them? Like, I'm actually confused about why they would try to shut this down. Granted, the producers, Berman, and the other people who are in charge of Enterprise made a lot of absolutely insane decisions that I don't even begin to understand. So I, I don't know. I really don't know where this is coming from. And it really does seem like a pointless, unnecessary change that makes the episode worse. That would be so easy to fix. And, oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that's the entire episode, except for the core theme. <laughs> no, seriously. Other than the core theme, which would take substantial rewrites to actually work, the overall approach of the episode is all these little things are nitpicks. They're small, and they would be easy to fix and easy to smooth over. Instead, it's aggravating. Fixing the holodeck would be easy. Fixing the uh, the pregnancy thing would actually... It wouldn't be that hard to, to fix, really, if we're being honest. Just play it as the horrific thing it is and have this be about Tucker trying to acclimate to this problem and be one of the dangers of interacting with alien races and how his trust was violated. This could be portrayed as a serious drama. Now, I still don't think they should because I still don't think this should be a plot point, but at least they could do something with it. Anyways, they approach the Katinga. Polarize. It is polarized the hull. I wrote it down. What do you know? They polarize the hull because they're stupid. The Klingon ship fires at them because because Klingons in this era are actually really stupid. You, I know a lot of people... I shouldn't say that. I know several people do not like what became of Klingons across TNG and DS9. Um, all of that was under basically Ronald D. Moore. I've talked about this before. He basically is the reason Klingon culture is what it is. Now... I like it, because I like what they did with the culture, and the fact is, it's not portrayed in a positive light. It is portrayed as a dying empire in the last gasps of its existence. I mean, I hate to agree with Ezri Dax yet again, but the Klingon Empire is going out, and it probably should. But one of the problems I remember, and we'll see if this is true going forward, is that the Klingons are so nonsensically warrior-focused in Enterprise that it actually bypasses believability. Again, we'll judge that as we go. But either way, they naturally attack on sight because they're stupid. And 
Archer, who is a moron, then tries to reach out and argue that they, you know, it's okay, they're harmless, but I, I need to talk with them. He isn't diplomatic. He actually gets demanding during the conversation, and he in no way tries to assuage any concerns the Klingons might have or in any way try to actually reach out to them or reach some kind of consensus or negotiation. In short, he doesn't diplomatize. He just talks. Once again, we are seeing that Archer sucks at his job. Funnily enough, T'Pol then comes up to the plate and knocks it out of the park by pointing out not only that they owe him, but it would be doing a great honor to listen to his advice on this one. This is, if I'm not mistaken, the first inclusion of fake honor within the course of Enterprise, and I will again be paying attention to that as we go. But it's interesting how once again T'Pol is the better captain. Huh. So then... He's considering, and naturally, to Paul's entrail, entreaty can't possibly be enough, even though, by all accounts, it should be. The Klingons owe him, and if you decide to go against him in this matter, you will be doing a disservice to someone who has worked for the good of the Empire. In short, you'll be showing yourself as dishonorable for attacking someone who has protected status. Fake honor. Exactly as portrayed. That should have worked. End of story. No. Instead, what has to happen is honestly probably the worst scene in the whole goddamn episode. Because what happens next is then Tucker has to entreat by trying to say, hey, they might be able to share their technology. Now, I know at least two people who, when we watched this episode for the first time, were thinking, oh, okay, this is where they get the cloaks from. Even though TOS already had a line about the Romulans sharing their cloaks with the Klingons, but we'll get there when we get there on the TOS stuff. Anyway, so they're trying to explain the cloak thing. Okay. Sure. No. No, he brings up the freaking holodeck. And so they share a holodeck with the Klingons. Now, that's not the part that pisses me off, although the geek in me is is just staring at that and, and dumbfounded at how stupid that is on every level that the Klingons would be big into holodecks, that it would be the kind of thing that they would be able to, to make accept, uh, acceptable with Klingon technology, the fact that the Klingons would be able to have this and then either lose it or never talk about it again because Klingons don't have holodecks even in the modern age. But no. No. What really pisses me off is what happens next, is Tucker has to go and prove that he has romantically entangled himself with someone, humiliating himself on the crew, on, on, on the bridge crew, so to everyone there and to the Klingons. And then, in order to prove that he can't let this go, he then reveals his own sack, I don't know what to call it, which is portrayed as, ha ha, look at how bad his cooking is. It is portrayed in a jocular manner. People are even like, oh, what's going on with that? The Klingons literally laugh at him. He has to de degenerate, de I'm losing my words, he has to humiliate himself and publicly shame himself in front of his comrades, co-workers, and friend, and in front of a bunch of complete aliens, who he's never met before and never will again, because comedy. Then the episode doesn't even have the decency to be over. No, instead, we then have to go through the motions to fill out the timing where they go over. This is when she says something interesting. I wrote it down word for word. I had no idea this could happen with another species. Pretend it was sex for just a second. Could you do that for me? I know, t you know, I, I mean, Chris Jr., I wish I looked like him, so sure, whatever. But pretend it was sex. Pretend they screwed, okay? Now, imagine that she said that exact line that I just shared with you. Oh, I had no idea this could happen with another species. If I had known. Oh, this is so... Keep in mind also that under the pr previous auspices, he would have to not know what sex is or what it is, or what it implies, right? None of the physical, emotional, mental, or little, literal physiological connections that sex implies were present. Instead, he's just doing this thing like, well, is, am I doing it right? You know, is this correct? 
Is this how this should go back and forth? What? I don't understand. And as he's doing this, she's just like, no, 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 you're doing good. You're doing good. Keep doing it. Completely manipulating and using him for sexual pleasure in a way that can and has been used for copulation. Now, that already pisses me off. But then you remember what was said earlier. Uh, but Trenail? Trenail? Oglesby. We have lots of experience with other alien races. Remember that? Hey, I didn't forget. <laughs> I bet the, the writers of this episode forgot because they made it a point that they have extensive experience with other aliens, or maybe he's just lying. And I get the really strong impression that this is the kind of thing that happens pretty regularly. Keep in mind, at one point, Archer was arguing that these people are harmless and nothing they were doing is deliberately malicious. I'd like to formally question that. The episode is clearly written and designed in a manner that they are nice people who are just just innocent, you know? They just destroy other ships because of their own bungling ineptitude and rape people. You can, you can already see where I'm going with it. I don't even need to finish the sentence, do I? No, I think they are actively malicious. Uh, marauders, if you will. To the point where these people are probably actually evil. And I think that actually makes a lot more sense than... Whoops! Banana peel! Then, just to cap... Because for some reason the episode still isn't over. To cap this off, we then have two additional scenes. One in which the Klingon literally says, I can see my house from here. Then we have an episode, or a scene, when they have the dinner scene. It's the only dinner scene in the whole episode. I mean, it's the dinner scene. You know what I mean. Obviously, they eat dinner. They eat food like four times in this episode. The dinner scene happens. And they just can't help but snark and make fun one last time. This is also when we find out it'll only take them a month at Impulse to get home, which is, I've already gone down that road. But to Paul, is like, you, congratulations. You are the first human male to, to be you know, pregnant, which first of all just means that she's never heard of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but second of all, ends the episode on a comedic note. Screw this episode. One last note before I cut off. I don't know if you know this, but I don't go seeking out lamentations. I, I know, shocking. Um, I don't want to give episodes lamentation status, and I don't enjoy discussing these things and what they... I mean, there's a certain value in discussing what to do wrong. There is. It's one of the reasons why in my review series, you know, for games, I actually enjoy reviewing bad games, uh, certain bad games, because it is an interesting exercise in discussing exactly what not to do. But this episode if it's not obvious, has drained the crap out of me. I might have to take a very small break before I move on to the next episode, because... I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you guys next time.